All right, good morning, everyone. Good to see you guys. This never, ever usually gets to happen because on Sunday mornings, we're in different places at the same time. That's how it works with church. But I've known Pastor Ben for a while, and I've also known your church for a little bit. I'm actually a local church pastor relative to you guys. I live just a few minutes away. So I'm glad that even though it's under these unpredictable circumstances in which we can't be the church gathered right now, that it gives me the opportunity to come and to be able to worship with you guys and to be able to preach to you guys and just to be able to share in the joy that is in being a part of a local church together. And so I want to share a little bit with you guys too about Pastor Ben. Uh, I was here a couple of years ago preaching and when I was here then, I don't think I knew him all that well. We were just getting acquainted. Our circles were starting to cross and we had started to you know, get to know each other and meet one another in different occasions. But since then, two years later, I have had the opportunity now to be in the same core team with him on the English Pastors Fellowship, which he mentioned earlier. And especially recently, since the pandemic, we've actually been video chatting every single week on a Monday. It's like one of the most steady appointments that I have the privilege of keeping. And so along the way, I've really gotten to know him and to see his heart, uh, to see his love for the local church and more, even more specifically for FCBC SGV. And so it's my honor to be able to come and be able to preach and share this pulpit with him and to be able to be a part of what you guys are doing here, even if it's only for one Sunday. You know, this sermon series that you're on, The Big Reveal, it's such a timely series because it connects through these seven churches all the ways in which many of us, whether personally or corporately in our local churches, we have both strengths and weaknesses you know, the inspiration of God's word in the Holy Spirit, it just allows this kind of relevance and this kind of long-term view to reach us even 2,000 years later, that even though we are not a church in the first century, as we break down these churches one at a time, in many ways, the Holy Spirit holds up a mirror for us to see our own hearts, our own priorities, and also the things in which we treasure, as well as the things that are most important in our lives. And so we're going to continue that today through the Church of Sardis. So please join me in a word of prayer as we continue. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you, Lord, for the simple joy of being able, Lord, to worship you on a Sunday morning or whenever it is that we have the opportunity to be a part of this gathering. Father, we thank you, Lord, that your people is so much more than physical gathering. Lord, that your people are those that have been redeemed through the work of Christ, who you've taken and adopted into your household, and whom we can call you our Heavenly Father. This identity never changes. This identity is a gift. This identity is the strongest one that we can have, that is never shakable, regardless of what storms come into us in this life, especially for eternity when we face you one day in judgment. Lord, we're able to stand on the foundation that Christ has built and won for us. And so, Lord, we pray, Father, this morning that we would come just with a simple attitude of gratitude. God, that we come knowing, Lord, that we have the opportunity to worship because we have been redeemed. Lord, and then it's with that, Lord, we want to turn our hearts, Lord, towards this church in Sardis in particular. God, we pray, Father, that you would open and soften our hearts to be able to receive both the teaching of your word, but also the conviction of your Holy Spirit. Father, we know, Lord, that all of these churches don't all mirror all of us, but we also know, Lord, that in each of these churches, Lord, there are aspects in which we can use your encouragement, your exhortation, and Lord, we can also turn and repent in our lives towards you. So God, may you open up, Lord, this 
understanding through your word today. And we pray that you will connect it to our hearts and to our lives. And may we follow you even closer as we enter and exit out through this worship service into the world. Father, where you have called us to be disciple makers. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this first verse speaks to something that is a very familiar pattern for us as we have been continuing through these seven letters. What you'll find is that the one that is giving this message to the angels of each church is no one other than our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And each of these messages follow this particular trajectory in which he is acknowledged, some aspect of our resurrected king is named, and then he makes observations about a particular church that usually lends to a commendation, and then he points out some weaknesses of that said church. He presents a solution, a way by which they can grow, and then he urges them to heed his words and his exhortation for that church so that they're able to be able to follow him closer, and they're able to be obedient, they're able to be responsive, and they're able to be used for his glory as king over all of these churches. Well, that's where it connects to us today because we come in the line of all of these churches. All of the people that have been saved and redeemed by Christ have been placed into the universal church, which represents itself in local churches like yours and like mine. And so as we listen to the sermons, as we even listen about today's church in Sardis, let us see how this pattern plays itself out and how we can learn and how we can glean from what Jesus reveals through the angel to the church in Sardis. Well, this resurrected Christ is described as being one that has the seven spirits of God and also the seven stars. We see in Revelation that these stars represent the seven churches that are being addressed, and certainly the seven spirits of God is a way of addressing the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus sent to be the helper, also to be the builder of the church. And so Jesus himself, in being identified as being the one that holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, then becomes clear to be the one that holds all power and authority, who sits and reigns at the right hand of the Father, and whose words are worthy to be not only listened to, but also heeded and obeyed. So at this season, we want to be directing our attention towards what Jesus is saying to the church of Sardis. Even though we ourselves are not the church of Sardis, let us see how he who holds the authority and who is building our churches, what he has to say to this church in particular. It doesn't go very far until the second half of verse 1, when Jesus follows along the pattern and begins to call out this church with what he sees. He says this about the church of Sardis. You are dead. Yes, that's actually what he says. There's not much more than that. What he says here is, I know your works, and you are dead. He actually says in quite a few other places where he says, I know your works, church. But then he commends them for some aspect of their works or some aspect of the quality of their church that is admirable. He doesn't say that here. He just straight up calls them dead. Now, this is a metaphor that actually connects to the city of Sardis very, very well. The history of Sardis is that it is one of former glory. This is a city that is now hundreds, very, you know, over a thousand years old by this time of the church. And this is a city that at one time was a military bastion of an empire. This was a city that was a political base 
for the empire, but this is all now in the past. That even though Sardis is a major city, it is relatively lower in prominence compared to others. So its best days were behind it. It's interesting that right outside of the city is a famous cemetery where kings of generations have been buried. And so the people of the city of Sardis, when Jesus says that they are dead, immediately they're able to relate and be able to connect to see that, wait, what you're saying, we're like the people that are buried right outside our city walls? Yes, that's exactly what Jesus is saying as the church reflects its context. Jesus says this, I know your works which is helpful if that was what was he was after. But this was not the point. Jesus knows everyone's works. So this is not a commendation for the church. Jesus knows that they've done a lot. Jesus knows that in many ways they have been faithful and productive and they have made disciples and they have taught and they have served one another in the community. But Jesus doesn't say any of those things about the quality of their work at all. In fact, he jumps in to this next phrase where he says, you have the reputation of being alive. Notice how he says reputation of being alive. This is not who you really are, Sardis. This is what people think that you are. And sometimes, as you know in life, looks can be deceiving. You know, we're going through this era right now, this COVID pandemic era in which so much of what we had known and what we've taken for granted and enjoyed in the past is no longer, if not only for a season. Let us think for a while, what are some of the things that we enjoyed? What are some of the ways in which we understood what it means to have signs of life pre-COVID? Well, for some of us, it would be attending sporting events, rooting on our favorite team and athletes. Others of us, we plan for places to travel, things to see, places to venture to. We might want to go on a cruise where we could eat to our heart's delight and see the world. We may even want to just stay more local and just spend a day at Disneyland and ride all of these rides that bring so much comfort and enjoyment to us. We might want to see the latest movies. We might want to just hang out at a coffee shop, perhaps catch the concert of our favorite artists, or just make a trip out somewhere to attend a festival. Well, all of that is gone. Well, when I say it's gone... It's not that the venues are gone because Disneyland, if you were to fly over it now, it's right there in the middle of the night. It probably looks like how Disneyland normally looks in the middle of the night. Beautiful, shiny, cool, lots of things that are happening there. But guess what? There's no life because there are no people. Now let's consider how that works when it comes to maybe what is closer to home for us. How about our churches? What does it look like for a church to demonstrate and exhibit signs of life. Well, pre-COVID, what we had as pointing us to signs of life would be a packed out Sunday worship service where people are singing to their heart's delight, raising their hands, where they are praying out loud together in unison, in agreement over the burdens that God has placed upon them, where they are hearing the word of God being proclaimed from this pulpit and where the Holy Spirit is working to help to understand and massage and convict God's people towards understanding and obedience. That all happens pre-COVID in a place just like this. When I was here two years ago preaching, you guys weren't here. So I actually wasn't here even though I was with your church. We were at your previous location. But now as I look around, none of us are in our buildings. The usual signs of life are different. There's no packed sanctuary. It doesn't matter how old or new your building is. 
There's no filled classrooms of students of all ages, teachers doing their best. The hustle and bustle of the hallways being filled with people that we know and love. Busy schedules, many ministries. All of that, at least for a season, looks very different. Although I do want to say, during this pandemic, especially your leaders and your staff, we're actually usually busier because we're trying to make sense of all of this. We're transitioning. So it's not that there's not much going on, but I'll tell you this. We certainly miss many of the things that point to signs of life. It is so different now. So if you look at an empty building today, it's not the same as when it's filled with people, which is why I appreciate that Jesus then takes the turn to point out to the city of Sardis that even though you are dead with the reputation of being alive, you are dead that you are not hopeless. You see, Jesus didn't just shut them out. Jesus presented and wanted to share the message of this letter to a group of people that he is saying is barely hanging on. But yet, they are worthy and they are important enough for their Lord and Savior to speak to them, to warn them, to shake them, and to wake them. And the reason why Jesus would do this is because this is his purpose for coming. Why did Jesus die? To give his life a ransom for many, to save sinners, to redeem them, to allow them to be adopted into the Heavenly Father's household, and to be able to live eternally with him. Jesus is the giver of life. So regardless of whether the church of Sardis is dead or barely hanging on there, he who gives life is able to exhort and encourage and direct the church towards the life that they so much need. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus is in a midst of a teaching contrasting himself to those that are false teachers and false prophets, hirelings, who are not good shepherds, who did not truly love and care for the sheep. And he said this then about himself, that he came so that they who are God's sheep and God's people may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to give broken, sinful, dirty people abundant, eternal life through his work. This is why the church of Sardis is not beyond hope. This is why any of you, any of us is not beyond hope. Even if all we have going for us might be just some appearance of life, but no substance within. We can find life in Christ. Let's go on to verses 2 and 3. And I want you guys to consider how you apply this personally to yourselves. Because we are currently a church scattered. And we are not able to meet in ways that maybe we've relied on in the past for accountability and for consistency. There's no longer rooms and schedules and times and classes that we attend to to be able to say, hey, I'm doing the Christian thing and put a mark on our chalkboard. Right now, even as you're watching this, you could totally be tuning out. Even right now, with no one but God seeing what you're doing, you could be halfway paying attention and halfway gaming or halfway thinking about something else. Or halfway just, you know, messing around or trying to stay awake. These exhortations, these commands from verses 2 and 3, I want you guys then to first apply to yourselves. Because the church consists of people, and the church consists of individual followers and disciples of Christ. So take these commands to heart for yourself first. Later on in a sermon, 
I'll bring back to some corporate applications for us to consider. There's five commands in verses 2 through 3. Let me go ahead and read it for us really quickly. Jesus said this, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Command number one. Wake up. Wake up. Be alert and stay alert. Don't fall back asleep again. Wake up. There's even consequences to not waking up what you find at the end of verse 3. Because Jesus will return anytime soon. We are always living in the last days. That's the mentality that we should have in every era. Because Jesus can come back anytime. So if you don't wake up, you're going to miss out. And if you don't wake up and you're not alive, when you face God in final judgment, you will have nothing but your sin to offer him. And so this first command of waking up, being alert, staying alert, it's not saying that you were lazy or you were inactive before because he pointed out that he knew their works. He knew their busyness. He knew their schedules. He knew their ministries. But maybe it's pointing to the simple fact that your walk in relationship with Jesus is much more than one in which you operate on autopilot. You're sitting in the back seat while someone is driving for you and you're just texting your friends, not paying attention where you're going. Autopilot. That your walk with Jesus is so much greater than just doing the routine, keeping a schedule and keeping busy with your life, whether in school, whether in work, whether in your home with your family, or even here at church. If you're not paying attention to where you're going, and why you're doing what you're doing, busyness is not the same as holiness. Busyness is not the same as intimacy with God. Busyness is not the same as loving God and loving neighbor. There's a difference, and it begins with just being shaken and being wakened to this truth of how it's easy to sometimes slide back when we're on autopilot that in our busyness that we forget that it's not just about filling up our schedules if there's anything that has shaken up our habits our schedules and priorities it is this current COVID-19 pandemic we don't even know what day it is in a week anymore as we go but see if there's any blessing if there's any living out of this first command of waking up, that everything happening is doing to us is exactly this. We have to ask the questions of why. When you don't have school to go to, why should you study? When you don't have work to attend and commute to, what exactly are you doing there? When you don't have the separation in your family schedules and everyone's together so that you have no reason to not build relationship with each other, how is that relationship? How are you talking and dealing with one another in your marriages and in your family? See, this pandemic is shaking up everything because what usually separated us and that we chalked off as routine is gone. And if you don't wake up and you're dead in your sins, then there is no hope at final judgment. And so remember, it begins with our openness to hear what Jesus has to say 
to us. The second command is this, strengthen what remains. You see the mercy of God there, even in saying this. Jesus sees that this church as a whole, he can say, it's dead. You guys are dead. But you know what? I've not lost hope in you yet. When Jesus says, strengthen what remains, it means that there are some, there is a remnant of people, followers of Jesus, who are still alive, even if they are broken, even if they are weak, even if they are distracted, that they can still have something to build their lives on because they have been changed forever by Jesus. Now, Jesus criticized their work, calling it not complete in God's eyes. And this contrast is to be noted because they probably think in Sardis that they're doing everything that they can. But Jesus is reminding them that you are weak and broken, but I'm not done with you. So strengthen what remains. Strengthen what is there. In Matthew chapter 7, this is the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus wraps up his entirety of preaching by drawing contrasts between what is true and what is false, what is good and what is bad. And in verses 16 to 20 of chapter 7, he talks about how you can tell the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet, a true teacher and a false teacher. Let me go ahead and read this short passage for us. Jesus said this, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And so if one is a follower of Jesus, if God has given he or she a new heart because of what Christ has done for them, then they are a good tree that even if they are struggling and even if they are barely making it through a pandemic, they will produce good fruit. And they're able to be made healthier and they're able to thrive in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, strengthen what remains. Don't just walk away. Don't just give up. Strengthen what remains because what is there is from me. What makes a tree, a good tree, or a bad tree, a healthy tree, or a sick tree? Well, it depends on what that tree is. And that leads to the third command, where Jesus says, in addition to waking up and strengthen what remains, remember. What do you remember? Anything? No, remember the gospel. What God has done for you in Christ. I want to flip back a couple of pages to Revelation 1. This is part of the prologue identifying who it is that is giving these messages, who the revelation is from, and what is the gospel that is connected to this revelation and to these churches. In chapter 1, verses 4 through 8 of Revelation, we find a few descriptions of who Jesus Christ is, which points to what the gospel is, but also the power of the gospel. So please walk with me here as I start from Revelation 1, 4 through 8. The first thing that John says is this, that Christ is king. Verse 4 of chapter 1 of Revelation. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. 
and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth. Christ is king. There is no greater power than Jesus. There is no politician. There is no scholar. There is no leader that is greater than Jesus in any time in history. Christ is king, and he is the king of kings. So remember that it is because Christ is king that then what he did is gospel. He has authority over all things and all people because he is king. So let's go on in the second half of verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Jesus' blood, Christ is Savior. You see, someone had to pay the price for the sins that we have committed. Sometimes there's a sense, maybe in our culture, that maybe God should just let everything go if he is so great. But we know and we learn from the Bible that someone always pays the price. That in the Old Testament, a sacrifice took the price, although temporarily. Jesus then became the perfect Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world, bearing the sins and the wrath that we deserve for our sin forever on himself. See, he paid the price. He was punished for our sins. Recognizing that and turning to God for help is the first step to waking up, if you haven't already. It is because Christ is Savior that then we have the gospel. And it's because Christ is King, then his gospel is the greatest of all. And that leads us to the last part, starting in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So Christ is King, Christ is Savior, and Christ will return. You see, in every single Christian's view of the world, we should be thinking that Jesus can come back anytime. We live right now in the last days. Because we believe this, our hope then is in our returning King and Savior, who will come for his bride, who will make all things right, who will rule perfectly, and who will give us eventually glorified bodies and allow us to reign with him forever in heaven for eternity. That is our hope. Not just that we could find a vaccine to a cure for a disease that is devastating the world. Not just that we can have perfect politicians that make perfect laws. Or even that we have perfect churches that always do everything right. It's because Christ will return that then we can hold our hope and trust in the brokenness of this life and just wait with anticipation, expectation, and genuine, transcendent hope. This is what Jesus wanted the church of Sardis to remember, the gospel of who Christ is and what he did and what he will do. Now, command number four is this. Keep it. Wait, you're thinking, wait a minute. If I've already awakened, if I'm already strengthening, if I'm believing in the gospel, how does this make sense? Why do I have to keep it? Well, the implication is that 
there's sometimes a tendency in us, whether internally to drift or externally to tempt. So you have to hold on to this particular truth, this gospel, continuously. It needs to be regular, daily, and it needs to be something that you own. You need to make this gospel the defining story of your story every single day. It is not what you do. It is not what you have inherited. It's not what your Sunday school teacher told you is the truth. It's what you believe to be the truth with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. You need to take ownership of your faith to embrace it, to even be willing to ask hard questions and investigate it and wrestle to hold on to it, to keep it at all costs. You know, during this COVID-19 pandemic, you're hearing more and more stories and headlines about people struggling with depression, people dealing with abuse, people taking their lives. People are trying to find out what is life all about now. And this even includes Christians, men and women, boys and girls in your church, I'm sure. Just even this week, there was news that came out of a particular lead singer of a Christian band, Hawk Nelson. His name is John Steingard. He announced on Instagram that he no longer considers himself to be a Christian. Let me tell you a little bit about him from his own words. John said this, after growing up in a Christian home, being a pastor's kid, and he, by the way, married a pastor's kid too, playing and singing in a Christian band and having the word Christian in front of most of the things in my life, I am now finding that I no longer believe in God. When you look through his entire post, it was very well written, actually. It was well articulated and clear and authentic. I appreciated reading it. But in summing it up, he had doubts about the Bible. He wondered if God inspired the scriptures or it was man-created. He wondered about the goodness of God as he looked around, especially at the tragedies in life and what he perceived to be inequalities in ways in which people maybe were treated unfairly. And because of all of these things that have been adding up for him, he made this declaration. He continues on to speak on behalf of him and his wife. Jess and I both always had the sense that we weren't always doing enough of the things we were supposed to do as Christians. We didn't enjoy going to church. We didn't enjoy reading the Bible. We didn't enjoy praying. We didn't enjoy worship. It all felt like obligation. And our lack of enthusiasm about those things always made us feel like something was wrong with us. You know, friends, I don't think what he's describing is unusual. Because we live in a world in which there are reasons to doubt everything and wonder about everything. God gave us intellect and a mind to think and reason to wrestle with these things. But what Jesus is telling the church of Sardis is this. Keep it. What your faith is, yes, wrestle with it. Yes, ask our questions. Yes, try to punch some holes in arguments that maybe don't make sense to you. But keep it. Own it. Deal with it. Try to find answers and turn to the word of God with fullness of faith one step at a time. 
You know, the same week that this post was made on Instagram, we also saw the passing of Ravi Zacharias. There was a lot of outpouring of tribute and sadness. But if you were to kind of read, whether it's just people's posts or articles written about him, there seems to be a common thread. That there was something about how Ravi conducted his ministry and taught that just showed this gentleness and humility, but yet at the same time, it is coupled with this steadfast earnestness to turn to God's word for the truth. His faith was anchored and grounded, not in the absence of any doubt, but it's placing his faith with complete trust in the fidelity of God's word. And trusting that because God inspired his word, that answers can be found. And what cannot be fully understood can be trusted and still lived on. Keep it. Own your faith. The last command is this. Repent. And I would add repent regularly, which you can imagine would be the tone of what Jesus is commanding here. That it's not something you do once. Just like it's not like I will follow Jesus once. But the call is to trust and obey. And repentance or a turning away from sin and turning towards Christ is something that you need to do regularly. And it begins with each person. It's not where you have a church that corporately repents. Every part, every member of a church needs to be personally repenting in his or her walk with God regularly. What does repentance look like? Well, yes, at times it exhibits itself in outward behavior and actions and applications to show a changed heart. But Psalm 51.17 helps us here when a psalmist writes, a broken heart and a contrite spirit is what describes what God will always receive with joy and pleasure. That is repentance. It is not only a change of behavior, or worse, a desire of not wanting to get caught or be punished. Repentance is a desire for relational reconciliation and intimacy with God. To grow in love and to make things right with Him, whatever it takes. In Joel chapter 2, 12 to 13, the prophet Joel speaks on behalf of God and says this to the people of Israel. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Notice how there are actions that they take, but at the end, Joel makes it really clear that the actions that you take needs to reflect a broken and contrite heart, that when your heart is torn, then your actions have substance and significance. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, you see John the Baptist coming into the scene to make the way for Jesus. And he is confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who, the Jesus, who Jesus himself, later on in Matthew, actually called hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. What does that mean? Jesus thought that they were dead on the inside, even though they were beautiful on the outside, much like the church of Sardis. So John the Baptist says this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So what comes first? 
a repenting heart. What comes after that? A fruit that arises from such heart. This is our daily practice, but we don't always feel like it. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know what? Yeah, repentance is good. I know that's important. All these commands, you know, I, I believe. But sometimes maybe I'm just struggling. Maybe I just have a hard heart. Maybe I just have a crisis of faith. Maybe I just don't trust God right now. Maybe I just don't believe in what I'm reading. How do I repent? You know what? You might actually be at the perfect place. Because the Bible says this in Romans 2, 4. That it is out of God's kindness that people are led to repentance. And so if you don't feel like repenting, and notice how I say feel, because we know we should, but we don't always feel like it, right? If you don't feel like repenting, and you want to live a life that is pleasing to God, you want to wake up, you want to hold on and strengthen, you want to own your faith and trust in the gospel, then just do this. Ask God for a repenting heart. Ask God to soften and break your heart. Ask God to give you a heart that is open to his word, open to his Holy Spirit, and open to his people. He will do it. Pray earnestly. He will do it. Now, let's go on to verses 4 to 5. It speaks then corporately to you. Jesus says this, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. See, Jesus sees into the hearts of the people of the church of Sardis and into every church and this is such an encouragement that's, that he, where he says, you might outwardly look distracted, outwardly look busy. I know your hearts, but you're not done. I'm not done with you. There are a remnant within you who have trusted in me, who are clothed in white, who have my perfect righteousness on their lives, and who are following me every day of their lives, even though sometimes it is imperfect even though sometimes there's mistakes. But they are worthy because our Heavenly Father sees me on them. So there's hope in Sardis, even with such a dire diagnosis. You know, in Sardis, they've experienced, even as of this time, some fairly devastating tragedies. There was an earthquake in AD 17 that took apart the whole city. And if it wasn't for help, from the Roman emperor, they would not have made it. So this is already a resurrected city physically, in, in commerce, and in people. And so the people of Sardis, they get this. They understand that people can rise up from ashes. And Jesus then is telling them to look for the people in your churches that are walking with him. And to seek after them. And to be discipled by them. This is where, right now, as a church scattered, who are preparing to regather, this is really important and essential for all of us. And one of the things that Pastor Ben tells me about is just his desire to equip and train leaders in your midst. That he knows that Ephesians 4 
commands him as a faithful shepherd to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's not that he does everything himself. And there's ways in which I know you guys are being trained. There's pipelines being established. There are lessons being learned. There are ways in which you guys are being equipped. And there are many in this church for whom this passage can direct your attention. Even though you are the church scattered, there are people that you can build relationships with to grow in Christ. And there are also people, if you are in a situation where you are a disciple maker, whether of your peers or even up or even down intergenerationally, Invest in people. Now's the time. You don't need a church building to make disciples. Many of these pastors, leaders, uncles, and aunties that have laid down the foundation for you guys in worship services and Sunday schools and in fellowships, they're still here, even though you're not able to meet here yet. So stand on that foundation that they have laid, but continue to turn towards these brothers and sisters and these pastors and leaders in your church. Verse 5 says this, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. At the end of the day, our hope, again, is not in anything temporary or fleeting. And what drives us also is not fear, especially during this pandemic, but it is hope in Christ. It is trusting in his return. It is holding on to his promises that those who are the people of God, that God has given to his son, that nothing, no one can take them out of his hand. You, if you trust in Jesus, the king, the savior, and the returning one, you will never be disappointed eternally. He will not let you go, and he will carry you all the way to the end. Our faith that God will let us into heaven actually begins with boldness in this life now. If we trust that he will take us all the way to the end, then we could trust him now. And we need to trust him now, especially when there's so many competing voices and authorities and politics, and leaders speaking different messages sometimes, and leading us in multiple directions. In verse 6, how Jesus wraps up his exhortation to all the churches, he says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So my prayer then is for you, to have that open ear, but also that soft heart for the seed of the gospel to land in fertile soil. In that hearing this, regardless of where you are at in your walk with Jesus, that if you repent and turn to him and you cling to the gospel and the hope that is in Christ, that he will not let you go. Even if it feels like the whole entire world is falling down around us, he will not let you go. I want to share with you a sentence to summarize today's sermon. At my church, we call it the big idea. So here's the big idea for today. A church is alive when its people are pursuing God and repenting of their sins daily as they persevere in his power and promises. One more time. The big idea for today is a church is alive 
when its people are pursuing God and repenting of their sins daily as they persevere in his power and promises. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for all that you have done through Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit to redeem every broken soul, to put them into a local church, to make us a part of your household, to give us a hope that cannot be taken away by any circumstance, any disease, or any political decision. Father, we give you praise because you are simply worthy of it, and we lift up the name of Jesus as King, Savior, and the returning Lord, who is our true hope in this season. Father, we want to pray, Lord, for all of us, God, that wherever it is that we are, that you would shake us, that you would wake us up from any kind of slumber spiritually. Take us off of an autopilot that we take for granted and allow us, Lord, to strengthen what you have given to us, to cling to the gospel with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to take ownership of this faith, even questioning it at times, trusting, Lord, that you will lead us in wisdom to the truth, and also to repent regularly. Lord, may our posture towards you always be one of a grateful and humble child in the presence of a perfect Heavenly Father who loves, who cares, and who desires the company and the prayers of his children. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen.